How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. We have a very exciting episode in store today for our listeners. Buffet Crampon is the foremost manufacturer of wind instruments in the United States and the world. Many of the country's top orchestral clarinetists, teachers, recitalists, and soloists perform on buffet clarinets. Our special guest for today's episode is Francois Kloch, who in 2014 was named the president and CEO of Buffet Crampon USA. Francois is also the president of Bern Kuhlpau Flutes, which was acquired by Buffet in 2016, adding to his already very busy schedule. Francois is the manager of the company's roster of performing artists and is a master woodwind technician. He was awarded the prestigious Outstanding Achievement Award by the International Clarinet Association at the 2016 Clarinet Fest in Lawrence, Kansas. It is my distinct honor to introduce our guest for today, Francois Clock. How are you doing today, Francois? I'm very well. Thank you very much, Sam, and you. Yeah, I'm doing, doing well. I'm very, very happy to have you, and I know it's going to be a very exciting episode. I always like to start off with an icebreaker question, and so for you, uh, you have the distinct opportunity with your job, which we'll, of course, get into later, to be able to travel to a lot of different cities and different parts of the country on a regular basis. So my question is, what is your favorite city in the U.S. that you have traveled to, and why did you enjoy visiting that city? And I know you know, you might have some hidden gems because the clarinet conferences are often in smaller college towns and stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to, to hear your answer to this. My favorite city in the States is Chicago, actually. Oh, okay. um, this is the first city we moved in 1996 when I came to the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, so we lived, um, we lived there for approximately five years. Uh, that's where the, my two first uh, children were born. So it's kind of a special place for that as well, uh, Felix and Lucy. But it's also um, a city that are, are really, uh, really intriguing. Uh, there is a lot of uh, different aspects, you know, culturally, uh, a lot of different uh, ethnic, uh, you know, living in the uh, in the city and, and around the city, uh, small towns, uh, you know, all all around on Road 60 or Road 45. You have you have beautiful little, you know, what what for European, you know, coming out of Paris. Uh, was like very nice American lifestyle. If I, if I can say, you know, they were like the town that I would see in, in American series when I was a kid in France. Mm-hmm. And then you're you're just driving down in, in that big, you know, car that we rented the first time we came. And uh, <laughs> there was kind of a lot of flashbacks from, you know, uh, series and what I, what I felt was, you know, the United States were like. So Chicago is really... To me, still today, uh, and you know, I lived in LA as well, and I go a lot to New York. But Chicago mm-hmm. is really the the place that that really holds something very special uh, in my heart. Well, I can't argue with that, considering I'm from Chicago. Um, which there I we go. Do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's I love it's just a 
I feel like it has everything that all the other big cities has, and it just it's just got also just a really deep cultural, you know, melting pot kind of feel to it, like like you said. Yeah. Uh, so my answer to this is is I, I love Seattle, Washington. I just love uh, every time I've been there. I love the food. I love the architecture. Um, it's stunningly beautiful, and and I just feel like the people there are very relaxed. And it's probably because they get to look at mountains and oceans, and I really enjoy that part of the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, LA was also Los Angeles uh, to me. You know, all that West Coast. You're right. There is, you know, I really loved living in the mountains. You know, when we left Chicago, uh, moving to LA. Uh, I mean, beside the traffic, of course. You know, I had to leave my house at almost 5 a.m. to be, to have a chance <laughs> to be at work uh, down the valley. Right. Uh, but there is there is something. I agree. The the mountain and the nature and you know the. I think also the light uh, really is 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 different. Uh, I don't know if it makes sense. When I when I travel, I always I'm always um, stunned by the uh, and interested at, at the light when you come out of the plane or when you come out the airport. I, I feel like different places on Earth. Uh, you know, it's the same sun. I guess it's mm-hmm. the same. I mean, there is not seven thousand suns, so it's uh, it's very interesting to me uh, the the different in. You know, some some countries are brighter. You know, I like Japan, for example. When I go to Japan, is I'm, I'm always amazed by the the contrast of the green and 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 the blue of the sky. To me, is very different, and I feel that on the west coast as well. There is that that particular color uh, that matches with the mountain. That it's really beautiful. So I I understand. You know, Seattle, a lot of rain. I mean, Chicago. It's it's not yeah. the best place for weather either. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really a a lot of people. I mean, I live in Indianapolis now and a lot of people always rave about the Indiana sunsets and I didn't know anything about it until I got here. And it's it's really, you know, like you said, each it's the same sun. But for some reason, it just the the way it produces in different parts of the country is just really stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Um, So, you know, you obviously mentioned you're European. So can you tell us where you grew up and, of course, how you got interested in music in the first place? Yeah, so I was uh, I was born in Beauvais, which is a small town in uh, Oise area. Um, it's between Paris and Normandy. For I think that will that will place it a little bit better on the map for uh, the listeners. Uh, it's a sixty thousand uh, people town. Um, so I grew up there. I was born there in uh, August fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. I had a big family. Uh, my parents had six uh, six children, so uh, three boys and three girls. And pretty much, you know, a uh, small town, really kind of growing up, going to, you know, the school of music. Uh, my my mother was a, a put us on uh, at the piano uh, right away. That was like the no no questions asked. We had a piano at home, and we all had to start by piano. Mm-hmm. And then after um, you know a year and a half to two years in piano, we could choose an instrument. I mean, we could we had to choose an instrument. I should say. Uh, there was no choice there either. Uh, yeah. It was like you will play music, okay? <laughs> did, um, did you have the option to like continue with piano, or was it they wanted you to play something else? Yeah, no, I I always I always kept uh, kept up, you know, at home uh, since the piano was there, and mm-hmm. you know I always kept up, which really helped, uh, especially with the instruments I picked. I picked the uh, uh, the oboe uh, mm-hmm. out of anything uh, that was uh, that was kind of interesting. There was a, a uh, kind of an open day uh, for for kids. Uh, the teachers were all from Paris, so they were they, they were they were the teachers at the uh, school of music, uh, which I attended, the, uh, the Ecole de Musique de Beauvais, 
Um, and, you know, I picked up the instruments just by having those teachers who were going to schools. Uh, and then they were doing the, you know, Peter on the Wolf, of course, uh, the mm -hmm. usual. And then the, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with the oboe. You know, the, the oboe pr professor was uh, Marc Donden, uh, who was the son of a very well-known uh, conductor uh, and composer of the Guardian, Music des Gardiens de la Paix in Paris. Uh, and he, he, he was, he retired uh, recently, but he was the principal oboe of that orchestra for many years. Mm -hmm. And then I just, it just, uh, that was just fantastic. The guy was funny and, and uh, on top of it, you know, at the end of the session, you know, they were sitting at the table and you mm -hmm. could go and ask question and give your name. And then, of course, everybody was going to the flute and clarinet and saxophone. And <laughs> and then I was kind of the only one going to the oboe table. So we, we really <laughs> hit it off because the guy was like, oh, OK, finally somebody. That yeah, is right. <laughs> so I, you know, the first I was funny because I said, are you lost, kid? I'm like, uh, no, I'm I just, you know. I'd like to have a question. I'm interested in playing oboe. And right. I was funny because he looked at me and said, are you sure? You, you don't want to go to where everybody else there? It looks like everybody wants to play something else. Yeah. So, well, no, I kind of you know, like the sound. And, and then we ended off and there was really someone that uh, was very important, not only as a, you know, my music uh, development, uh, but also as a mentor. The, the, uh, it was very important in my, in my professional life later on. Um, so I went into his class and then I, two years later, I could pick another instrument. So I took the French bassoon. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, when I was around 14 years old, I watched a, a program. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Etienne Vatlow, who was one of the biggest luthier uh, in the world, actually. The guy was, uh, there was a program on TV about him. And uh, he started the school in Mirkour, uh, which is a very well-known uh, school where Pretty much all all the luthier, either you know, a violin maker, cello makers, or or bow makers are going now, mm -hmm. and you know they had that incredible program on French television, and I could see that guy with a Porsche. You know, he had like a big Porsche and and yeah. car, and then he had like that white lab coat with his known his name on it, and mm -hmm. you know, beautiful store downtown Paris, and I'm like, wow, I want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, I went I went back to my uh, to my oboe and I found a screwdriver in the case and I started taking stuff apart. And yeah. of course, that was a disaster because I lost half of the screws. The keys were flying left and right, and I really felt bad because I'm like I didn't want to tell my dad, yeah, uh, my mom and dad because that was you know the oboe was loaned you know uh, in France uh, the, the the instruments that were not that popular. Uh, to attract kids, they would loan instruments from the conservatory for two, three years, and then, and then, if you were serious, you know, you could buy your own uh, mm -hmm. because they were quite expensive. Uh, so here I am with the instruments that I don't own. Um, half of the stuff around my room. I mean, I, I, that was that was everywhere. So yeah. I put in a shoebox, you know, and I and, and my dad is dropping me at my lesson on the Wednesday. And he says, are you okay? I say, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm all right. So, well, you know, I didn't hear you practice much this week. So, well, you know, I had a lot of homework and, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's fine. And then I walk into the place and, you know, I opened the shoebox. Yeah. yeah so, of course, me. my teacher, yeah, my teacher was like, uh, are you serious? Why did you do that? Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, I thought I could, you know, I saw you take a screw last time and I thought, yeah, I'm going to clean my instruments. So, well, where did you see someone do that before? I said, well, never. I said, well, if you're going to do something, you need to learn how to do it. 
I'm mm-hmm. like, okay. Uh, so he, he called my dad and my dad came back and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be killed. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they took me to that store. There was a music store nearby the conservatory with a very old gentleman uh, that was the repair guy. The guy was really, really, I mean, he didn't want, like to see anybody. Uh, he said, put the thing there and I'll look at it later and I'll call you when I'm done and don't ask any question. Mm-hmm. And then my teacher, you know, kind of say, oh, you know, this is my my student and I think he messed up something and can you let me know, you know, the damage because, you know, all the keys, look at all those keys and he kind of winked. I mean, I, d- I didn't see at the time, but, you know, he told me many years later that, he, you know, he winked at the guy, meaning, you know, make him pay for it, scare right. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the old man was like, oh, my God, who did that? And I'm like, oh, no. So, you know, they, they really made, they really, really scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he said, well, it's going to take me forever to put it together. Uh, so I'm going to take it in the back and, you know, I'm going to have to call you, but that's going to be a very expensive. And of course, you know, I'm like, oh, God, my dad's going to kill me. Why did I do that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that was kind of a game saying, well, you know, I can have you pay. Uh, for all the hours it's going to take me, or you can come on Saturday and I'll teach you what to do and I'll have uh. you clean the store and I'll have you clean the keys. And they thought that would be a punishment. You know, that was like, okay, yeah. you know, you had me like buffing keys. I mean, you burn your fingers because, you know, it's like you, you, I was doing all the prep and I actually enjoy it actually. And that was kind of weird because the guy was giving me stuff that he felt oh, he's not going to like, you know, he's young, he's not going to like to have, you know, rouge on his hand and he's not going to like to be poked by springs or making screws on the lathe and and I actually really enjoyed it. So, you know, that punishment kind of became like, oh my gosh, when is Saturday? Because I'm going to go and yeah. so that, that really didn't work. You know, they wanted to scare me, but on, on the other hand, they gave me that kind of boost to, uh, that. that's really what gave me the envy to do the job. So is that um, like what inspired you to be to become a master yes, woodwind technician? Yeah. Like that was yeah, the initial... That's... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was yeah. the initial stuff. That was kind of, uh, and after that, you know, my teacher, I mean, the, the, the gentleman spoke to my teacher and said, look, you know, he really enjoys that stuff and he's, you know, he's not bad at it. So, you know, he should, he should maybe pursue something like this. I don't know if he's going to make it, but at least mm-hmm. there is something there. So did you go every Saturday for like lessons? Yeah, and... I went, yeah. I went, every, well, I went every Saturday my punishment because they did. Oh, and of course he told, yeah. he told me that, you know, the oboe, he could not put the oboe back, you know, together. That would take a week, which mm-hmm. was absolutely, you know, that, that was not, not true. true. I mean, in 15 minutes, the thing was done, oiled and in the case. Yeah. And I, I believed it. So I said, well, you know, one week of my work, you're going to have to come for six Saturdays yeah. and spend the Saturdays there. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, Saturdays. Yeah, you gotcha, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to go with my friends to the pool and, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I, I, I went for six Saturdays straight. And it really kind of, um, I really enjoyed it. And, and and then he spoke to my teacher. And then my teacher said, well, it seems like, uh, would you be interested in doing a career in there? I you know for me, school was okay. But, you know, I was not like the big, you know, I was not very, I, I love music. And, and I really wanted to make something, you know, kind of work manually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I talked to my dad. I said, you know, can I, can I try to be an apprentice for a year in Paris? My teacher told me he could get me to the, uh, a manufacturer that he's working for uh, as, a, as a tester. And can I do this, please? And so I made a contract with my dad, actually. I, had, I still have that piece of paper. 
somewhere where he's, he had me sign a, a, a contract saying, you, you know, I let you go for a year to Paris. You do that for a year. If it works, great. If it doesn't, you come back and you do whatever I tell you to do. You go to school and you get good grades and that's it. We never talk about this again. Mm-hmm. And I signed. I said, all right. And uh, yeah, I was. I was uh, 15 years old and I went to Paris alone. So from 60,000 people town, I ended up in the 18th area of Paris near Moulin Rouge. Uh, mm-hmm. That was uh, the, 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 the Pigalle area, uh, which is very different than a 60,000 people, you know, very slow paced town. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started working for Migno Oboes, which was in, in the ninth area near the, the conservatoire at the time near Gare Saint-Lazare, uh, and which was an oboe manufacturing, very small. And uh, I, I became an apprentice there. And I stayed there for a year. Uh, and the owner of the, the company had a pretty terrible bike accident. He was in his mid-40s and he fell on his bike in Paris and hit his head on the sidewalk and died. So the oh company, gosh. yeah, so the company was, okay, that's it. You know, the, the sister who was doing the books, his nephew or cousin was was in the, in the Alps, you know, making woods and turning wood. So everything shut down. And then here I am not even a year into the agreement I had with my dad. And so my dad came to Paris and we toured all the companies in Paris. You know, we went to Marigot and Rigota, Buffet, pretty much everyone. And at the time, you know, with the, the only company that was looking for someone was, um, was Rigota. So I ended up working for Rigota Oboes, uh, where I started uh, again as an apprentice making keys. So I started by making, you know, uh, obo keys by hand and then some finishing and some turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I stayed there for, for five years uh, with, um, with also kind of a, a, a cut uh, for the military service, because in France, you had to do one year of mandatory uh, military service. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that was cut by that. And that was a funny thing. The, the master there, the, the person that was there was a really nice guy. His name was uh, Guido Jolif. And, um, and he actually, you know, gave me some stuff to do and, you know, kind of criticized. You know, at 15 years old, you don't, 16, you don't like to be criticized. Of course, yeah. you know everything. I mean, I'm 32 and I still don't like to be criticized. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, it never goes away. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there was a little bit of the, at least you learn a little bit as you grow older. At, you know, mm-hmm. that, I was really like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm good. And the guy's looking at me and say, what are you talking? Good for what? I mean, you're not even there for a year and a half and you think you can make that stuff. So it kind of gave me a lot of difficult stuff to do and made me come, you know, very early. And at some point I had it because he, uh, we were not seeing eye to eye. And, and one day he said, well, if you're not happy, you know, you can get the door there and make sure it doesn't hit you on your way out. But that's it. Uh, you're going to do what I tell you. Uh, so I called my dad and I said, you know what, dad? You were right. It's not for me. It was like six, seven months into the, the deal I had with him. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the train on Saturday and I quit. And uh, you won. I'm going to go back to school and I'll become whatever you want me to become. And, and my dad hang up. I was like, uh, okay. So I called back. <laughs> and then my mom, <laughs> my mom picked up the phone and said, uh, is dad mad at me or something? You know, I was having the conversation. I told him he was right. I'm going to you know, I'm not good for that job. And so I said, can I talk to him? You know, I'm sorry if he's mad. 
I said, oh, no, no, he's not mad. He just told, he just, you know, uh, told me to have you call him back in, you know, uh, when it's a year. Because it's not, it's not a year yet. The deal is a year. You try for a year. You don't quit. Yeah. I was like, holy, okay. So I'm going back and and that's the big the best things that he could have done for me you know it's like don't right. don't quit you 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 know there is stuff that's going to be tough and you're just going to have to deal with it um and then the rest is his story i stayed with you know stayed with riguta and became very good friend with that gentleman uh, he was very a, a fantastic guy just again you know many of the people in this industry as the, that are makers and you know spend a lot of time in the factories uh, not only they're very good at you know what they do in terms of making and teaching you but they to me i learned more about life from those people and how to behave and how to be and you know you take what comes at you and you make the best of it and and you're always trying to come out ahead and and make sure that you're you're helping the person that you're supposed to help don't find an excuse of sorry i cannot help you because this broke so i cannot help you know you cannot play tonight because my and that was the thing i went i went to buy uh very expensive screwdriver and i was not making any money i mean i was apprentice in france was you were making i think that was a third of the smic the minimum wage i mean i could buy maybe a burger king or you know once a week and that was about it and i went to that store that sold screwdrivers and i bought like that nice set of like five or six screwdrivers i don't remember i think there was a set of six like beautiful screwdrivers so I'm coming back on the Monday, all happy. I, I, I unroll the thing and I put that on my bench and I'm waiting. The guy's coming and said, what's that? So, well, you know, those are the, you know, screwdrivers. Look, they have different tips and you can you can use that for that screw and this one for that screw. So, oh, that's nice. Can I see them? So, you know, yeah. So he took the six screwdrivers and he went to his bench and he took his cutting pliers and he cut all six screwdrivers. Oh, my gosh. And I cried. I mean, I was like, <laughs> you spent all your money on them. <laughs> why, why, why did you do that? I said, oh, I don't know. You know, they just broke. So they didn't just break. I said, oh yeah, but you know, in real life, you know, they broke or something. You did something drastic. And by the way, in two hours, there is a guy from the Paris Opera coming and he needs an adjustment on his elbow. What are you going to do? I'm like, well, I don't have screwdrivers. I said, well, my point, can you make a screwdriver? I said, uh, no. Well, why don't you start by doing this, that you can buy all the nice screwdriver you want on earth, but don't depend on something else. Learn how to make it first. Then you can buy the fancy one if you want, because if it breaks, at least you know how to fix it. And the store is too far. I mean, that was a great lesson. But I say, you know, you could have taught me that lesson with one screwdriver. You right. didn't have <laughs> to cut the six. <laughs> and he says, well, you know, I know you. You're a kid. You would have turned around and still used the one. So, you know, I'm sorry. And later on, you know, yeah, there was a little envelope. I, I remember when I left and, you know, that was like, a, I think that was at the time was still the, the francs. You know, it was like an hundred francs in there. And it says that's for the screwdrivers from, you know, five years ago. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm proud of you. And, and you know, that was, and I was afraid to leave. You know, when I left Riguta, I was, you know, I was scared to tell the guy, look, I'm, I want to do something else. And I, I, I want to open a store with my brother. And I'm going to do all the repairs and I'm going to learn how to tune pianos. And, and we found a store in the south of France. And, and you know, the guy was like, well, look, I'm, I'm proud because I, I've, I've helped you in the way. Move on. Don't think about me. I'll always be there for you. And, you know, I say, if you don't want me to leave, I won't leave. And he says, what are you talking about? Do go your life. You know, don't, 
don't let someone stop you from doing. I mean, he had, you know, sometimes it sounds cliche, but that was really something that, that really opened my mind and my eyes about what the world is. It's like you, you know, you just have to follow your dream. And as long as you, you know, stay ethical and you do the stuff and, and you work hard, then, you know, some stuff will happen. You know, sometimes yeah. it doesn't happen as fast as you would like to, but it, it ends up happening because you just keep sticking to it. Yeah. And I think that that's an interesting comment about how, how you know, you still learn from all these people. And I, and I always felt that, you know, the most I've, I mean, you can learn all you want in school, but the most I've ever learned is from the people, like when I got into my first job, I learned so much from the people around me Yeah, working. It's just different. Like you, somebody can tell you what to do in school, but when you're actually there doing it, you have to depend on these people to learn from from what they're doing yeah, and their and, experience. You know, and you mess up. I think the best, you yeah. know, it's, uh, you know, wh why not making a, you know, a mistake? That was my first thing. I said, well, you know, I, first time he asked me to use the buffing uh, room and well, maybe I'm going to make, you know, it's been so long since I buffed the key. I, I don't want to make a mistake. And he's looking at me and, you know, that was like a little box, a wood box filled with like twisted keys and stuff. I said, that's the bust of the box of mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, right. about it. you know we'll they'll go to that box and then the next one will be good but how can you learn something if you're not you know you're, you're gonna have i mean you have to control you know you try to not make the mistakes all the time you learn from it but mm -hmm. uh you're right I, I think the the book is a very good theoretical way to approach anything but then you know doing it and i'm sure you must have that as a professional you know musician yeah. You know, it's when you sit in the orchestra, when you sit on the chair, when you when you have that adrenaline rush and that kind of, you know, oh my gosh, I'm that's it, I'm on the spot. This is this is where things mean. It's meaningful. Yeah, and and nobody can recreate that scenario for you. It, exactly. No one, no one can. They can tell you about it, but until you're doing it yourself, you have no idea what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they can, they can, you can be prepared to a lot of things, and I think. You know, when you do master classes and when you teach you know, your students or when when you have someone that 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 you can help in, in a passage or in a, in a, in a particular part of uh, music or anything, I think you can, you know, this is the impact you have. But when when they're on their own, when they're live, when they're doing the audition, when they're playing the piece, that's it. You, you, you can go on stage and, and help them out. And I think it's beautiful. The, the, the gentleman, Guy Le Jolif, was always telling me when when we were making keys, you know, because at the beginning that was a very, I mean, that was all handmade. So you had a piece of metal and then you, you just forge it and you had calipers and, and you shape it and you solder it. I mean, that was like the old way, you know, a lot of time he, he always said, look, it's like you're on a very fine string and it says when you go to the circus and you see all those people walking above everyone on one you know, it's like the funambule type things. Mm -hmm. And they are just making, they keep the equilibrium as much as they can. And, but there is no safety net. There is no, but that's what make them do incredible thing is because you have to focus. You have that kind of in the back of your head. If I mess up, then that's not going to be good. <laughs> it's it's going to yeah. feel, <laughs> it's going to feel pretty bad. But then you have, it's, it's that old balance that I think makes things become beautiful. Either it's, you know, and I believe it's the, it's the truth for any type of jobs, you know, uh, it, both in the arts or, I mean, a painter and, you know, sometimes by making a mistake or a cook, uh, 
you know, a lot of the greatest dish, you know, kind of came out of something that stayed on the stove a little bit too long or someone put a little bit too much of this or that. And then it became kind of, you know, elevated the dish to another level. And I think it's the same on everything we do in life. You have to live on the edge, you know, but with reason. Yep. It's always have to be within reason because you don't want to, you know, I didn't want to break too many kids. Uh, yeah, right. Because, you know, I was paid by piece rate. So, uh, you know, uh, until you finish something, you were not paid. There's some extra motivation there for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're young and you think that the world is yours and, and then you cannot buy a drink to the, you say, you know, meet a girl, say, oh, let's have a drink. I cannot even have her, you know, buy a drink, maybe one, but then if she wants another one, I'm going to look like an idiot. So, yeah, right. you know, it's uh, <laughs> just different motivations. Yeah. So uh, you touched on this earlier when with our introduction, but when did you move to the United States? And in, in... 1996. Okay, 1996. And and like, how yeah. difficult was it for you to leave your home country? Like, was it a difficult decision or? Uh, you know, I left Reguta and, um, because I wanted to open that store with my brother. And then I, so I, I, I give my resignation and I sit in, a, in the office with the boss, with, uh, with Ronald Reguta and Claude Reguta. That was a family owned. So I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I got my check and I leave. And I call my brother. That was, uh, we, we, we had a, Everything was set for us to buy a store in Nice on the French Riviera uh, because he was a piano piano player. And so we would sell pianos. I would do woodwinds. I mean, we have, so I called him. I said, hey, I'm packing my stuff. I just want to let you know I'm on my way. And he says, well, you know, I, I didn't tell you before, but I found a job and, you know, it's better. I have kids and I, I think that store thing is not going to work. I'm like, what? I just quit my job. <laughs> Why don't you call me yesterday? Yeah. Uh, so I hang up and I say, well, okay, good for you. So I'll see you in a bit. And I was really upset. I mean, I, I threw the phone on the wall. I'm like, what am I going to do? And then I went to Grenoble and I worked for a store for a minute. And then uh, I ended up coming back to work with Laurie Obos in Paris for five years. And fast forward, you know, René Le Sieur, who was my idol, I have to say, was the, the guy. I mean, he's still alive, so I should not say was. But um, René, René started at Buffet when he was 13 years old as an apprentice and never left. So René worked with Robert Carré, with Daniel Gauthier, I mean, Jacques Lancelot, on, 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 on. And really moved all the way up. And, you know, when I started in this industry, he was someone I wanted to become. Like the first guy I was talking about, Etienne Vatlo. Well, you know, it was making strings. So I'm like, who's the guy, who's the Etienne Vatlo of Woodwind? And that was René Lossieux to me. I mean, the guy was like just really, really sure of himself and incredibly talented with stuff. And, you know, when I was at Loy, uh, there was a, a music uh, festival uh, called Musique Rain, uh, which was uh, like uh, exhibitions and stuff. And, you know, I was having a coffee somewhere at the at the bar, and here, here he comes and I say, "Hey, you know, I'm running this." I say, "Well, I, yeah, I know who you are. I probably don't know who I am, but I know who you are." Um, and he says, "Well, you know, I heard about you, and be very interesting to discuss things and to talk because uh, you know we're looking for someone to go and you know walk in the U.S. and and then in the meantime, I met my wife uh, Sheila, who was my English teacher actually when I was at Lori. Mm -hmm. uh, I started taking some English lessons because I didn't speak 1995. I didn't speak a word of English. I did a little bit of school, but nothing. So they sent me because the majority of oboe players, as you know, play Laurie Oboes. Um, and at the time was even more than today. 
So, you know, to have a little bit of discussion when they needed some work done, that was difficult, uh, the communication. So I went to get some, you know, after hours class in the uh, adult learning uh, business. And then there was my wife, that, I mean, the person that would become my wife. So English became really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was not I was not very excited at first and then I'm like oh gosh I'm gonna have to get some you yeah know, now you have to get school. excited because your wife's sitting right <laughs> yeah, your future yeah wife exactly there. so yeah. now I'm saying how am, how, how am I gonna ask her to go to the movie theater right. in English <laughs> yeah. um, and then and then after that we you know we kind of uh, you know headed off and said hey you know that's uh, I like you she like me so we, we we started dating and then I I'm you know, at some point I said, look, there is that incredible opportunity, but I just met you and that was really serious. And but the thing is to go to the US and working with, uh, you know, Buffet Crampon, but in the US. And she says, well, you know, uh, there is no strings attached here. My family is in Scotland. Your family is here, but there are planes. And that's, you know, if it's something you want to do, if it doesn't work, we always can come back. And I was like, oh, OK. And then I you know, joined Buffet and then we uh, spent a year in France. So I joined Buffet in 1995. Mm -hmm. And then um, we moved to the U.S. in uh, December of 96 uh, in Chicago. And, you know, uh, that was in uh, actually in Libertyville, outside of Chicago. That uh, No way. The, I grew up in uh, Vernon Hills, which is right next door. Oh, yeah. Vernon Hills. Yeah, so yeah, I, like yeah. Door, so Buffet yeah. was in Libertyville. Uh -huh. And then uh, I lived in Mundelein. And then yeah, so that's Vernon where my, Hills, my parents' house is. Yeah. <laughs> so I bet was, we were neighbors. Yeah. At some point, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it, that was uh, that was really, and that was really exciting because not just you know the the moving away from Paris was difficult. The language was very difficult at first because my wife, uh, before we left, um, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first son, so she stayed in she stayed in France a little bit longer. And uh, I, I moved alone in December, and she joined me in, I think, February or March. Mm -hmm. uh, so for a few months, I was on my own. I mean, my English was yes, no, and that was about it. I mean, that was really, really the basics. Mm -hmm. And I remember they put me in the car and sent me to New York with Chris Coppinger, who actually still is uh, the division manager for Buffet Crampon today, he's still, he's still on the team. Mm -hmm. And he picked me up, and, you know, first time I go to, you know, JFK Airport and I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm in New York, the, the dream. I'm in Chicago, New York. Uh, I was like, like a kid. Uh, and the guy picks me, you know, his uh, Irish descent. So guys get me in the car and start speaking English nonstop from JFK to Manhattan. And I'm looking at the guy and I'm, I, I had a headache. Cause yeah, I you're like, I'm understand. in trouble now. What am I going to do? I could not understand anything. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I probably thought that I was rude because he was like asking me question and I, he was speaking so fast. I was funny, you know, he stopped at the, in Manhattan and dropped me off. I said, oh, that's the hotel there. You know, I'm going to park the car. So he just stopped in front of an hotel that was on the Ave, I remember, like a boutique hotel. And I walk in and I'm, I'm going to the, to the desk. I said, oh, this is Mr. Clark. Do you have a room? And and the guy said, no, we don't. We have no reservation for you. I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure you do. So I'm starting arguing with the guy uh -huh. in my broken English. And I, I can see that he really gets annoyed. And then Chris showed up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to get the room. We're staying next door. <laughs> Seriously? So, so that was like the, you know, those, those moments you really feel alone. Because, uh, I mean, I felt so bad for the guys that I was arguing with. 
you know, he looked at me like, you know, you know, I should have slapped you like five minutes ago, but I'm, yeah. I'm a nice guy. Yeah. And so there was a lot of those little things. The, the language at the beginning was was very difficult. And, and you know, culturally, I was used to go out like at, you know, eight, nine at night, you know, to have dinner. Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, I'd go have a drink first or, you know, uh, catch a half of a show and, and then, you know, I did that my first night. I went to um, uh, all the, the malls around, uh, you know, on, on, on 60. And, you know, I'm going going to a Max and Irma, as I remember. That was like a, a burger place. Yep, yep. And that was like 9 o'clock. And everybody's looking at me and say, uh, yeah, are you lost? I said, no, can I eat? Said, no, we're closing. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like nine o'clock what are you yeah. what are you talking about say you know uh, so i learned that you had to go at like six 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 thirty was like the rush that was like a dream you know i was living like a dream i was somewhere that was really exotic for me even though chicago is far from you know having exotic, palm trees yeah. and things yeah. uh, but that, that was that novelty that that you know kind of that excitement about being somewhere i was not known you know it was my biggest thing I went to see the first person I walked with when I was 15 at Mino was the, his name was Michel Vigé. And, you know, I went to see him when I had the, the offer from Buffet because I really stayed in touch with him. That was really the, my first mentor in the business. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I'm really worried because, you know, I'm going there and nobody knows me. And in Paris, you know, the guy from the Paris Opera comes for me and, the, you know, uh, Orchestre de Paris and everybody knows me and everybody brings their homes to me and I'm doing all those repairs and I'm part of the place. Mm -hmm. And I say, I'm going there. Nobody knows me. And he looks at me and says, well, I guess you made up your mind. So you're going to stay in Paris. I say, no, you know, I'm just asking you. I said, no, you're not asking me. Right now what you're doing is finding excuses not to go. But you already made up your mind. I'm like, oh, okay. But, but what do you think? I said, well, what I think is when you first came in Paris, and you first walked into the Mignot factory when you were 15 with your dad. Nobody knew you, Francois. And after all those years that you worked at Reguta and things, then you started creating a following and people started knowing you. That's going to be the same in the States. You're going to have to make a name for yourself. But there is nobody I know that can go from Paris to the States and just appear. And after a week, everybody knows them. You have to walk for things. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he, you know, he gave me the same thing with the plane. You know, planes go both ways. You know, it's not like, you know, if if it lands in Chicago, if it doesn't work, you come back to Paris, mm -hmm. and you go back to your life. So that was more what was scaring me was more the fact that I was going into the unknown. You know, the the, yeah. the artists, the musicians. I was talking to Laurie Bloom last week, um, and he's really one of uh, Laurie and Don Montano are really the two key people. That really helped me so much, uh, mm -hmm. you know. And David Weber also. David Weber was was very particular uh, in in the thing, and of course Stanley. Um, but Laurie Laurie first came in Libertyville, and I'm I'm sitting there, and I'm you know there's somebody at the front desk say, "Oh, Mr. Laurie Bloom and Mr. Larry comes are here to see you." I'm like, I have no idea, Sam. It's yeah. like, uh, who? <laughs> Yeah. I'm like the you know the little Frenchie coming in. It's like yeah. oh, okay, so oh, yeah, it's Chicago Symphony. Oh okay, so all of a sudden Chicago Symphony. I say oh, all right, so that must be that you know those guys are yeah uh, because I was really really I, I don't know maybe a few weeks after I came in, and and then they came and 
And I remember Laurie was was coming to you know try new bases because that's around the time when uh, we started doing some improvements on the base, which later on was you know 1998 was really kind of the big shift. Uh -huh. So he was coming to try stuff, and you know I'm sitting there and I'm I'm like trying to make them understand half of what I'm saying, uh, and then they leave, and then as Phyllis Williams who was the artist relation at the time. Said, oh my gosh, I didn't know Larry and Laurie were there. I said, yeah, you know, they just came to say hi and I wanted to try a bass. He's good. Mm -hmm. And she's like, what do you mean he's good? Yeah. I said, well, yeah, he plays, you know, it's, it's nice. I mean, guys, I mean, both of them, they're pretty good. So they're in the Chicago Symphony, Francois. Yeah, the, the, what the do best. you mean they're pretty good? Yeah. I said, what are you talking? <laughs> so, you know, I had like that kind of weird, almost kid. I mean, I was not a kid anymore, but I was like that. You had to relearn everything. Yeah, naive. You know, you're yeah. kind of naive because it's like it's not your scene. It's not you know the orchestra is, is you know, is 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 big orchestra with a lot, but you have to relearn. Like you're right. It's mm -hmm. almost like you have uh and 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 Laurie was really uh, really amazing with me. I mean, you know, so many yeah. times I had doubts and I had like, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm you know, I'm never gonna make it and it's hard and I don't know if people understand me and there is a lot of stuff that I'm, I'd like to be able to express better. And, and it really helped me tremendously in becoming more, not secure, but, but little, it's a look, you need to relax, just take deep breath. And, you know, it's, we're talking about music here, just do your stuff and people will be patient. And, mm -hmm. and if they're not patient, then their fault. I mean, you know, don't put that pressure on you. That was almost like peaceful attitude all the time which really helped yeah well good for you for like just taking that leap and be willing to take a risk and you know like you said just yeah. going to a country where you didn't even speak the language basically and and just you know you you were good at what you did and you know now everybody knows you and everybody knows who you are so <laughs> you clearly turned that corner um yeah yeah so before you were named president and CEO for Buffet, uh, you know, as we've discussed, you've held many other positions within Buffet mm -hmm. and its parent companies. So can you describe like some of your responsibilities and the other roles and, and like how it kind of led you to where you are now? Yeah, the first, well, the, the first reason René, and, and of course that was after René Le Sieur, again, him, you know, he came uh, in the, in the mid 1990s, uh, like 1995, he did a tour in the U.S., because there was like reports that, you know, um, Buffet was under attack, I would say, in parentheses, or that other brands were starting to kind of, you know, get more interest in mm -hmm. in the player's mind. So he went and, you know, he found out that there was more of a communication and relationship with, you know, the head office at the time, with, with, the, with the company that was, you know, the Buffet Crampon USA of the time, mm -hmm. uh, which was part of Booze and Hawks and some personalities in there. So he came back and he said, hey, you know, uh, to the president of the of Buffet Crampon, we should send someone from the factory over there that has the technical skills, uh, that has the weird accent, which is going to bring, you know, kind of a little bit of a local flavor sure. from the French thing. And with on that part, they got 100% of the, of the, weird, uh, the weird accent. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, having, having kind of re- reconnecting with some of the players and you know i was mentioning don montanaro but there was so many others that kind of were i don't want to well i think taken taken for granted by uh, by the the person that was in charge at the time it was mm -hmm. like well you know everybody plays buffet why should i bother you know 
um, and and that that really kind of that, that was that corner that wanted to turn. So I was the woodwind product specialist when I came in 1996. So I was in charge of all the yeah, setting up of the instruments, and also that was that thing with the you know buffet compound is a kit. You know, you buy it, and you have to try 250, and you find one, and then you bring it to Brannon or to uh, you know Mark Jacoby or whoever that is you know technically uh, skilled, and then they set it up, and then you have a client. And there was a lot of that stuff that that I wanted to change because you know first of all there is a pride thing. You know, coming from the factory and knowing all the people that makes those instruments and are really good at making the instruments because it's not as easy as people think it is. Yeah. Um, so we kind of felt like, well, you know, it's not fair to those guys because that's not true. It's not a kit. It's it's very well made, but there is maybe some adjustments that are missed because there is not that communication. So I started building that bridge between the U.S. and France and say to the guy, say, look, you can take care of this part. Because I, you know, that would take me too much time, and leave the rest of it, and I'll I'll finish it here. I'll do the final little touch, the final little adjustment. So spend your time on doing more of this, and then so we kind of built a little system, uh, you know, in the background uh, with some of the guys that I was sitting at with the factory, and we kind of turned it, you know. At least after that, that was like I, I put something in place that was called the platinum service. So it was like a little uh, booklet. Uh, where I put like a, a, a checklist of things that were checked, you know, spring tension and tone holes and the wood is in perfect shape and the, the joints are, are are fitting together and the pads are sitting and everything is in plain condition. And I sign it and I put the serial number and there is a card coming with it. So I tried to kind of put something saying, look, every single client are being gone through and have the same exact process. So kind of have a consistency. And of course, after, as you know, you know, you try, you can try 20 clarinets or 50 or 10 or two. That's going to be differences between them. But at least I wanted to get to the point where mechanically everything could be played. And then the musician could make the choice based on their preferences in color, in, you know, intonation, what, mm -hmm. what, the, what, what they felt uh, was coming back. So that was a big part of my, my job was really to turn that kind of attitude that, you know, you buy, you buy a, again, like a, it's like a puzzle, you buy it and then you bring it to someone else. Um, and that really kind of changed a lot of things. And a lot of musicians, you know, started, you know, noticing Laurie, of course, and Russ Dagan and, and, and all, all the, you know, all, all the players around the country. So I said, you know, it's much more consistent and we like this. And can you do this a little bit differently? And that really helped having that connection that kind of was lost before mm -hmm. that we're, you know, well, do you play buffet? And if you do a masterclass, we'll be there and we'll help you. But that's about it. I try to rebuild a little bit that personal touch and that personal, a lot of those artists that, that you know, I had posters in my room of <laughs> most of them when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, now they're calling me and say, hey, what do you think? Can you listen to this? I'm like, who the hell am I yeah. <laughs> to listen and tell you? You know, when Stanley asked me first, like, hey, what do you think between this and that? And I'm I remember I didn't say anything. I looked at him and he's like, are you okay? I say, yeah, I'm fine. I said, well, are you going to tell me? What, what, which one do you like better? I'm like, Mr. Drucker. I said, stop with the Mr. Drucker thing. I told you to call me Stanley. I said, okay, Mr. Drucker. I, 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 and I, I was like, I don't know. Can you play again? And I'm, I'm looking and he says, something's wrong. See, 
you're asking me. I mean, who am I to tell you what? So I'm asking you because I'm asking you. So give me an answer. I'm like, you started really getting annoyed. Yeah. So I like this better. I said, well, me too. You see, that was not that difficult. All right, let's go have a drink. (laughs) You know, and that was like that weird sense that I was like fond of my idols. And it's like, I don't know, for someone that plays basketball, it's almost like, man, I don't know, Michael Jordan asking you, hey, what do you think of that? move yeah and, uh, yeah i cannot do it so yeah it's kind of cool you know it, it's interesting you say that because i remember the the first time that that Lori brought me in and we were trying clarinets and and he was like asking my opinion on the clarinets and i was like is i was a little stunned because you know it was always him telling me what to do and now he's like asking me what i like better and what he sounds better on you know it's just a weird yeah thing but, but the, it's cool in a flips. way yeah it's great it's great i mean you have a sense of you know, kind of pride. But on the other hand, I'm looking in denial. Say, I cannot even play like half of a scale on the thing. And he's asking me, what if I tell him something that the opposite, then he loses all the... Um, but that was very interesting, that connection. Uh, and and most of those guys, you know, Mark Nutru and Greg Radin, and I mean, on and on, kind of became more friends, you know, more, very close. Uh, where you can talk about other things than clarinets and, you know, we go and, you know, meet with the families and, you know, hang out. And sometimes we just have like, especially now we, with the, the COVID, you know, we've been keeping in touch, you know, through social medias or, you know, pick up the phone and call. And we just, you know, it's like we, we, we want to know how everybody's doing. Mm-hmm. And that's not not at all related to, to anything professional. So that, that was kind of that missing link i would say and you know look that could i was lucky that that's me but that could have been somebody else that could have sent and that happened to be me and uh you know i tried to make the best out of it but that's that you know uh, that was very easy because of the of the people you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i was fascinated by the school you know i came from you know in paris you have the paris conservatory you have the lyon conservatory you have bordeaux also which is very you know, kind of a different style. And then, of course, you have Lille in the north of France, which is where pretty much a lot of the great players come from the northern part of France. Whatever reason, I don't know. Uh, you know, Maurice André and, I mean, Philippe Cuper. I mean, when you take on clarinet, it's like the, the list is endless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here, that was fascinating to me to see the differences in style within the American school. Because I was mm-hmm. like, you have the American school and then you have the Philadelphia school. You have the you know, kind of little flavors from every different schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and that was that was something that also in the personality of the players uh, really helped not only on the relationship, but also with the company, with with the directions and you know what they're looking for and, and how to how to prepare the instruments in a certain way. So you know you know that the person's gonna look first at a certain thing. So that, that really helped. I, I had a little book uh, booklet with all the names on what the people liked and what people, you know, what they didn't like. And so it's a, that was really, you know, because I didn't want to make mistakes or, yeah. you know, to, to say something that would put me in a situation that would, you know, I didn't do on purpose, but that could, you know, make the person uncomfortable. So that, that's, that was another great learning uh, thing. So that was the woodwind product specialist. And then after that, I kind of added up the, uh, the marketing when we moved to LA. I became mm-hmm. director of marketing. Uh, but I was still doing the technical stuff with, you know, uh, repairs at the, at the booth at ICA. 
you know, the first time I, I took all my tools and I started doing changing pads and have a little lathe and tenon corks. And, and we kind of kept that tradition of having someone at the booth doing some free repairs on any instruments. Uh, actually, that, that was like, you know, I remember Eddie Daniels coming and, and Ricky Ricardo, you know, one time oh, my pad fell off, nobody's there. Can you help me? Yeah, no problem. I, you know, to me, it's a clarinet. So that was kind of cool also for me that would, that was like the, the business side, uh, but but the technical has always been a very big part of uh, my DNA. I mean, that's that's what I've done the most uh, in my career so far, um, and I still continue to do it once in a while. I mean, yeah, uh, I I still have the bench, and once in a while there's people crazy enough to ask me to do something. <laughs> I think I think it's just because they're nice. No, because I, I there's no so. way they probably they probably send the stuff to someone that knows. They just want to make, you know, make, yeah, we're going to make Francois feel good that he's, he still have his screwdrivers and stuff. Um, but it's it's um, it's very. I think it's a good thing to have that balance mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, you know, it's easier on the the conversation when someone has a as an issue. I think it's a little bit easier even when they try a new instrument. Uh, there is that connection right away because they know that you you're going to listen to the same to the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've learned so much. I mean, it's like it's to me. It's not a. I mean, it's almost like not a gig, Sam. It, yeah. It, for for so many times, it's like you're you're spending your time with people you admire, and you go to incredible concerts. You hear incredible musicians. Uh, they become you know they become your friends. They you get closer and closer to them, and then you get paid to do it. And it's like. Yeah, so that's that's got to be your favorite part, I would imagine, of this job is just oh, getting yeah. to know the people and the yeah. artists and everything. Yeah, that's yeah. that's all it is. I mean, the artists I always say, you know, all the artists from Buffet, uh, as you know, uh, from being one, it's like you you guys make the brand. The artists are the brand. You know, it's like that connectivity between the person playing and us making, and that dialogue and that relationship that is built and that is helping you know one from, hey, I need this little bit more power on this, or I need to do this differently because the conductor is asking me this, or, you know, we're traveling so much, or whatever it is. And then we try to take this and make an instrument that's going to give you those. So there is that. That's what I like is the the, the exchange, the constant exchange between the artist and, and, and the manufacturer, which is kind of unique with Buffet, I have to say. Everybody does it to a certain level. But I found working with other companies, uh, I really felt that there was another level with Buffet for whatever reason. I don't know if it's the people in the factory or if it's uh, it's very difficult to describe, but it's it's um, it's like part of a, you belong to something, you know, uh, like a family. And again, it's it's all cliche stuff, but it's it's really true when it comes down to this. It's very hard to describe. Yeah, and I think too, like it's 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 one thing for you to put out a product but for you to listen to feedback and have like you said this active back and forth like it 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 changes the product fundamentally because then it's this symbiotic constant evolving thing rather than just like we're buffet we're going to put out the best clarinets play on them you know yeah 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 exactly i mean it, it's it's uh so that's that's really the part that is uh and you know and the competition uh, i think is i've always uh, felt that uh it's very good to have a healthy competition and have, you know, makers that are uh, that are strong, that are making good stuff, because that always push you to 
the limit, you know, the edge we were talking about earlier. You want to get better. There is that ego. There is that drive that, may, yeah, there is no way those guys are, are going to make a better thing. And at the end, the musician, you know, the musician is benefiting. And that's what makes it more and more difficult, to be honest, because I think we got to a level that is pretty high now in terms of, you know, what what is available today. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there is very little things you always can ad- adjust, of course, and you can always make better there is never the perfect product because that'd be boring number one uh and i don't i don't believe in that perfection thing um because it's an art form because everyone's going to react to a a, to an instrument in a different way like a mouthpiece like you know the jaw is is i mean the embouchure the jaw the 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 teeth position the tongue position is going to be different on everyone so you're going to have you know you have to uh, uh, adapt to this but I think the you know uh, that was one thing that was really sad is when LeBlanc, LeBlanc you know uh, went uh, went out. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all because that was a big part of my you know my childhood. You know, a lot of players were playing LeBlanc at the time, and you know I knew Leon LeBlanc. I mean, Leon LeBlanc was kind of the the white wolf. You know, the guy was was bigger than life and very intimidating, and and there was something to to those instruments that really kind of, you know, uh, I always felt was necessary for for the for the industry, and then when it went out, it's kind of created a void that was that that has never been replaced in a way. You know, we took some of the share and some other people, but there is a missing part there that I think is always sad when there is a when there is a, a company that that goes under. You know, you have some people that wow, yeah, that's great. You know, we're we're going to get more market share, but it, it, at the end, it doesn't always work that way because it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's creating something that is that was not meant to be there, you know, that was filled, and and you cannot really change what you do because you have your own identity. You have your, I mean, there is so much you can change your identity to try to become someone you're not, and then you play a role, and you cannot play a role all your life. Yeah. So you have to be, you, you only can be yourself. So, you know, you can do some things that make you, make someone feel like, oh, okay, he's flexible and you know, uh, he's, he's, he's doing something a little bit different. But that's something that's very important to have. And uh, yeah, it's the same for all the orchestras and having like a, a great, you know, mass of orchestras that have their own differences, their own sound, you know, their, their own individuality and, and collectively have that sound that is recognizable. I think it's great. That's why I, you know, I feel it on it without going, you know, sidetrack. I, I remember when I first came, I could tell the difference in 15 bars or, of the orchestra. Either Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, mm-hmm. because of, you know, the strings or the, the wooden section or the horn section, whatever. And, you know, there is like that kind of uniformity at some point that kind of came. And I think maybe from the conductor side. Because they're traveling so much, they want to have the same. I don't know. Maybe they want to have the same sound or the same feel, which I can understand. But then there is that identity that really makes something, you know, kind of the the taste of, you know, you're, you have the taste of Chicago. To me, has always been associated, you know, the food thing. I always associated it with, you know, well, there is the sound of of the city of Chicago, and there is the sound of the city of Indiana. There is the sound of the city of, you know, Jacksonville anywhere. No matter the orchestra, there is. I think it's great ambassadors to to what the cultural 
frame of the of the the city or the region and you know that's the only thing that kind of difficult now it's kind of that uniformity uh, for whatever reason i'm not saying it's bad it's just different you know it's just that's mm -hmm. what today i kind of miss this and also probably because i cannot say i cannot find the difference anymore so there is a in evenings, they say, "Oh, I can tell you in 15 minutes what it is," because you know you study it and <laughs> you study those those pieces so much, and 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 you you learn how to recognize the the bow, you know, the 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 way the bow, you know, the string sections use the bow in in orchestras is very different from you know every part of the world. So that was kind of that was the the good thing in 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 my study in music to to have a lot of analysis, music analysis, and listening. And, and that's interesting because it's not just the sound; it's it's also the personality of the people, and, and that's important to today's world. We have differences, and that's what makes us that's what makes life right. These differences. You mentioned the constant evolving and innovating that Buffet does with their instruments, and so I guess the most recent thing to come out uh, and correct me if I'm wrong is sort of the, what people are calling the Tradition Two, which is the new sort of reimagined version of the Tradition clarinet. So. I was wondering if, if, if you can maybe uh, tell us, are there any new and exciting things sort of on the horizon or is that sort of still? Yeah, no, yeah. There, is, there is a big one, uh, which, you know, I, I mean, depending on, I, I think it's big because we, it's uh, not sure if the, the U.S. market will be the place uh, where uh, there, there will be uh, uh, a lot of interest, uh, but we're coming out with, uh, with a German model. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, so that's the Tosca line. Uh, it's been designed and worked on with a German artist. Uh, you know, Sabine Mayer uh, tried it, and there's a lot of uh, people in Vienna and, and Berlin. And so we, we've worked with a lot of, uh, a lot of artists, the German and Austrian artists. Um, and, it's, and it's finished. It's done. Uh, and I think it's supposed to be coming out uh, uh, September, I believe, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so that's part of the Toscana, and it's a big, big departure for Buffet because we never had a German model. I mean, it's the ger German system. It's, it's pure German system. Uh, so it's pretty, uh, that's pretty cool. Um, of course, we came up with, you know, with the, the Prodige uh, student clarinet, which is very interesting concept because that was mm -hmm. for so many years, the, you know, the clarinet you start learning on is, is like a cylinder pretty much. And, you know, molded yeah. in plastic, and that's it. And we kind of, you know, uh, recreated a professional bow. It's actually the polycylindrical bow that you have in the E13 or R13 that has been put in plastic, which technically is pretty difficult to do. That was the biggest hurdle. Uh, but that was something that was very interesting and challenging, and that came out, you know, pretty good. Yeah, the German system uh, is is really the one that is is... Is being latest, worked huh? on. Yeah, that's the latest. Um, yeah. You know, the legend, you know, came a little bit after uh, the tradition. And all these new models are really, I mean, they're really great. I, I love, like, I, I play on Tosca clarinets right now, um, but yeah. I, you know, I, I haven't tried the new tradition. I've tried the first generation and I, I like yeah. those quite a bit. Um, and I love the legend as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's like you said, it, it, it's the, evo the evolution. Um, it's kind of all of a sudden, you know, that, that was the best example where we came up with the tradition one, if you can say, or the, 
the first, you know, with uh, with the American players, which was a big thing too, because that uh, before the tradition, there was never North American player involved in kind of that uh, particular design uh, area. Uh, so that was with, of course, you know, Michel Arignon, Paul Meyer, Nicolas Balderou, and then the the, the U.S. team uh, with Mark Nuccio and um, uh, Bert Hara, Greg Radin, uh, Victor Luperi, and then Jonathan Gunn. Yep. Uh, that was really interesting to have that process. And, you know, again, we, they tried the stuff. We came out with something and then it evolved into, you know, hey, let's tweak this little bit. Let's do that. Like you were saying, the feedbacks of, hey, that's that's how it feels. Could we move that way? Mm-hmm. And then it, it evolved to another model, uh, like, like we've done with the bass. You know, I mean, the bass clarinet, I have to say, and as a, you know, I mean, you know that better than anybody. When I came to the U.S., the Series 33 was kind of, that was it. That's all you mm. were seeing. You know, every orchestra player is like, what do you play? Series 33. Say, what is that? <laughs> they don't even know the, you know, they don't even tell you the name, the brand, because it's like, ah, that's what it is. And, and I, you know, that was really interesting to start seeing all the, all the bass clarinet position all of a sudden when there was 100% Series 33s. Then all of a sudden became 50-50, and now it's almost, you know, uh, it's once in a while you have another. So it's that evolution again is very interesting where we didn't, in my opinion, we had the best clarinet, but not really before the, the 93, you know, in the in the 98 area, when it's really where, you know, we walk with Laurie and, and, you know, going the back and forth with the prototype and the changes and, and and you know the feedbacks like you say um yeah and then most recently too the the, the tosca bass clarinet and and uh yeah. you know that making a new i mean you can make new changes to clarinets but making a like change to a bass clarinet is very difficult there's yeah. just a lot more that goes into it so the the tosca bass clarinet has been around for five years now ish yeah somewhere yeah. around there yeah. yeah you know that's one of the things that is um that is very good first of all you know i'm sure you met eric barret with the the person that uh, works in the research development at Buffet mm-hmm. is a great clarinet player and, and he's, you know, he's working constantly with the team of artists and people visiting and taking notes. And, and, and there is, there is that constant work of a, it's not big. Oh, okay. We came up with this and we have two others there and we're going to, um, we're, maybe we're going to come out with, with, a, with something new, you know, every year. We don't just do that to come out with something new, just to come out with something new. It's it's always based on a, a demand or, or so, you know, a, 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 I would say not a miss, but like a, a niche that somewhere, oh, you know, that 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 particular instrument doesn't do this. So let's try to find something that is going to be in the middle. And and you know, sometimes it's difficult because the more model you have the more difficult you, it is to have differences between the models. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find amazing in the line. You know, when, when I first came to Buffet, I was like, why do you have so many? I mean, I was the elite and that was the festival and the DG and the RC and the R13. I'm like, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a hard time remembering half of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there is really a big difference in between. You know, it's not just something that you dress up and put new flavor. It's yeah. really acoustically there is something that is drastically different, which is kind of cool for the musician, but it's also very challenging for the for the the people making it. So it's it's very exciting. I mean, it's a passion. Again, you know, you have the passion of playing and creating music, and 
and you know touching people with your heart and and the way you play and on our hand it's you know you sit at a bench and you're creating something uh you know piece of wood that's going to have keys on it and that's going to be the vehicle to that you know um to that beautiful music you guys play yeah. it's it's pretty cool you know yeah. it's, it's it really is yeah that's absolutely great um so i'm i'm going to ask for some some advice from you so i i've i've never I've never been to Europe or been to France. Uh, I was supposed to go this summer with my wife because she has a friend who lives in the south region of France. Obviously, our trip had to get canceled because of yeah. everything that's been going on. But I just I want to know, like, is there a city or region that you would recommend to people that's maybe like a hidden gem or, you know, some somewhere where they oh, yeah. wouldn't especially think to travel, but, you know, you, you really enjoy? Well, there is, you know, there is the... Of course, you know, you'll you'll land to Paris to start with. I would always say, since you're going to land in Paris to begin with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at least stay one or two days. You cannot see Paris in two days, but you have to have that feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to go there, you you have to at least go and wander in one of the areas of Paris by Notre Dame or Le Marais or, or wherever, but just have that feel of that, you know, crazy city. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up, of course, in the, I was born in the north, but I grew up in the south of France, uh, near Les Vaux-de-Provence. Uh, and so I'm a little bit more of a southerner, mm-hmm. even though I don't have the, the accent when I speak French. I have an American accent now when I speak French, but I don't have the <laughs> southern accent of French. We ruined you, didn't we? Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, my football team, of course, is Marseille. So I, mm-hmm. I, even though I lived in Paris my entire life, I mean, my entire life, my entire professional life, mm-hmm. uh, almost, uh, I never went to the Parc des Princes because that's the that's the big rivalry. Uh, mm-hmm. I always refused to give money to Paris Saint-Germain. So <laughs> uh, I, um, I'm like a diehard uh, yeah. Marseille. But the south of France has, you know, the Provence area, so Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, Les Beaux-de-Provence, Arles, Avignon. Uh, that's an area that is absolutely incredible. Uh, that's why I got married. Uh-huh. Uh, that's why my parents are there. They, they, they had their summer house. Uh, I would recommend, you know, the Provence and then, of course, the French Riviera. Uh, but going from Antibes to, to Monaco, I mean, it's close enough. So you have to go see the, the palace and, and go to Monte Carlo. I mean, that's a, that's a, a must. This you can do later in half a day because it's a, it's just a rock with tons of buildings in it, and that's about that's about it. Um, yeah. But the, there is this area, and then one of my, I mean, it's difficult to say I have a favorite. I mean, definitely the South, and that's that's a big place place in my heart in terms of you know I, I really love the food from there, uh, a lot of fish and you know olive oil based, and uh, then the Southwest, which is you know around Bordeaux area it's beautiful the food is crazy you know foie gras and duck confit and and the people are very very nice uh, the toulouse of course uh, toulouse not just because of the the cassoulet and the food but also the it's called the pink city uh, la cité rose so all the stones of all the buildings are are pink and it's an absolute i mean it's beautiful to see uh, and then of course if you love food um, and that's what i was saying where Probably if there are some French people listening to this, they're going to take my passport and strip me from my French citizenship. Because um, everybody, you know, <laughs> every region, really every region in France has their own 
culinary, you know, specialty. And, and there is, I mean, everything everywhere is great. But to me, the center of food, the culinary capital of France is Lyon. Uh, with the, yeah, I mean, that's, you go okay. to Lyon, then you, then you have, you have the experience of the, of, of, of the French food of, it's really amazing. You have great restaurants and you can, you know, go to a little hole in the wall. And that's what I like in, in France. No, no matter where you go, you have those little cafes and those little restaurants. They make the, you know, the, the daily dish, le plat du jour. And then it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, something that you, you just, you have to spend two hours after sitting. And that was so great. And that's out of nothing with, you know, people's recipe and, so to me, you know, for the food, I would say Lyon, and the city is beautiful. And of course, you know, if you if you love history, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Normandy uh, because my you know my 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 grandparents and you know visiting the village uh, where where they were and and also because of you know the history of Second World War and uh, there is a lot of you know still a lot of stuff there. Uh, but you know, I. I Personally, the South is, you know, don't get me wrong. I love Paris, but the South is is very special. Um, there is, yeah, I mean, I, I would go there. Well, let me know when you go, and I'll get you a, I'll get you a list of stuff. Yeah, I will. And we're hoping next summer because that's when the wedding is rescheduled for not yeah. our wedding, but her her friend's wedding. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's it's uh, man, that sounds sounds wonderful, and I'll definitely have to let you know and yep. get some get some specifics and um so i just i want to thank you so much for joining us today um i'm so proud to be a, a buffet performing artist and uh just on behalf of of myself and, and and all of us just thank you for everything that you do and um you know i know we wouldn't be where we are without these wonderful instruments and certainly you're constantly trying to uh improve and listen to feedback and make us feel feel great so we can perform this amazing music well, you're welcome the pleasure is mine and you know we're we're the one lucky to have all of you guys and you in particular also as a as an artist that's uh, that's that that's fantastic for us so and please know we don't take this for granted I, I i certainly don't and everyone else around the group we it's um i'm serious when i say that it's it really helps you know, the identity of the brand and and that connectivity with the artist is is really magical. So I, I thank you very much for that as well. Uh, we would not be there either without you guys. So thanks, thanks, Francois. Um, and for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to the Candid Clarinetist. <laughs>